Good, I'd like to ask again for your attention, some considerations. Um, conscious that um, a few of you are graduating today and going to the big retreat. Uh, I guess one of the um, things that I feel I have made a real turnaround in my understanding of practice is that when I started this many, many, many years ago, it felt like becoming independent meant doing more and more on one's own and um, relying less and less on others. And I am, the older I get, more and more conscious that I rely so much on others. And I, uh, in many ways, um, acknowledge more deeply my dependencies. Yeah? My dependencies on lineage and tradition, although um, as anybody who has grown out of a tradition will, will feel some unease about one's own particular background, one's own particular lineage, one's own particular family, one's own particular subculture. I, I can't take anybody serious who kind of comes out of a tradition, out of a dynasty, out of a subculture without in some way getting increasingly more critical of those very traditions that have made that growth possible. And I, um, I have no patience for party members, yeah. religious ones, family ones, national ones. I have no patience for this in my life anymore. So any tradition will consist largely of dead wood. Uh, any tradition is at best soil, fertile soil. It doesn't provide fixed uh, functioning and organic products. It provides the raw material for that, for a growth process that will look highly individual. And um, Buddhist traditions make no exceptions of this. Buddhist traditions are, many of them are largely preoccupied with their own self-mythologization. Um, many of those traditions need to do a lot of homework yeah, they have a lot of house cleaning to do. Many of them are uh, quite confident that they're the custodians of some pristine and eternal truth. And any little bit of investigation of what has actually happened in the history of those traditions will come up with usually unflattering little insights. A, that these traditions are not what they pretend to be. B, that their authenticity is a lot more dubitable than they pretend that it is see that some of the influences that shaped the particular brand of this tradition often owe a lot to historical circumstance or uh, inspiration or so any investigation into tradition will probably come to the sobering conclusions that traditions are pretty man-made pretty contingent circumstantial and highly composite in nature and yet we need them yeah. We absolutely need them. I think the idea that we could just start from scratch without having to bother with these traditions they're handing down. Um, 
It doesn't sound adolescent to me. It sounds puerile. You know, it sounds conceited. We can't fix this on our own. You know, it'd be good to learn something from our ancestors and forefathers and foremothers or whatever they are called. Uh, not to repeat them, but to seek the inspiration these per, per people have sought. Um, if we want to find the Buddha, we need to, in some ways, find our way back to the traces, to the fresh traces of the Buddha. And by, ad by adopting some of the adaptions Buddhist teachings have taken in the East, we will probably not really succeed. Yeah? Remember the things that we may think is genuine Buddhism in the East is actually not the genuine Buddhism. You know, the things we know, Tibet, Korea, Thailand, Japan, uh, Burma, these are not indigenous Buddhist countries. Yeah? These are already the Buddhist adaptations in those countries that have happened over centuries. So while we can be inspired, while we can be trained, while we can uh, go and learn from living oral traditions, and there is nothing that really matches that. No amount of book learning, no amount of retreat sitting here on the east or on the west coast will give you an idea of a living oral tradition. So if you have a chance to connect with these lineages, do by all means. And yet, the Buddhism that we will need for our societies and our countries and our particular brand of dukkha in our lives, um, our societies and our mindsets, that Buddhism can at best be inspired from Burma or Tibet or Thailand or Japan or Korea. Every attempt to clone one of these and implant it here um, is unlikely to really meet, meet the conditions here. Yeah. It may be useful that we adopt, that we make this grow, that we learn from these cultures and traditions, but at the same time, if Buddhism wants to meet our story that's going on here, and if this story here seriously takes Buddhism up, then some kind of deep dialogue needs to happen beyond Thai and Burmese and Khmer and Japan and Tibet. I believe this has happened. I believe um, we are part of this. I find this is one of the most fascinating periods, safe from actually living in the Buddha's day. Uh, I think this is probably the most fascinating time to live. It's a time when Buddhist traditions have started talking with each other. It's a time when Buddhist traditions, various traditions, traditions who generally haven't talked a lot with each other, you know, while some of them have always argued, Buddhists have always argued with each other, and the nice thing is they have mostly done so without bashing in each other's heads. This is a real, this is a real good selling point. This is a real unique selling point for Buddhism. Disagreement without violence. But the truth is, most of the time, Buddhist traditions have not talked with each other that much. They have lived behind their mountains and on their islands, and they have held a few opinions about each other, and if should they have encountered each other, they generally, rather than talking to each other, they have resorted back to their books and looked up what the other guy was about you know, and consulted their own texts about what the other guy's opinions were. So uh, 
since Buddhism has landed in the West, suddenly Buddhist traditions also in many ways find themselves on neutral ground. Yeah, so Tibetans take note of Koreans, and Sri Lankans take note of Nepalis. And, um, so, and given that the West in many ways is neutral ground, it's possible also for these traditions to become more conversant with each other. And sometimes these traditions of Western disciples, which heightens that um, dialogue between Buddhist traditions, and something really powerful is happening. So Buddhism is taking note of its different branches, and Buddhism has landed in the West in a big way. Uh, the dialogue with individual sciences has begun, and we're beyond the initial phase. The initial phase is usually marked by an attempt, you know, to distinguish oneself. So Western philosophers try to think that Buddhism is really all wrong, or because it's pessimist, or it's it doesn't have a god, or or it um, it doesn't do justice to social development, or things like that. Depending on which corner you look, uh, what Marx Weber thought from a sociological point of view, or what some of the Christian theologians thought from their point of view, or what philosophers thought from their point of view. Um, the history of this is full. That's the first phase, and then the next phase comes where people really like find borrow from Buddhism. So you have a few Jungians who kind of start thinking that, uh, you know, Tibetans are using mandalas and we like mandalas, you know, and so basically they're doing something similar. So you try to find similarities. So this is the second type of look. The first type of look was saying, we're not like these, you know, these are not like us, you know, let's keep them sure that they exist and they have their place, but, you know, ours is different. Let's stay with ours. And then the next kind of phase is, oh yes, you know, over there all the good stuff is happening. You know, Buddhism is exactly what we have lost here. So the history of the reception of Buddhism is quite cute. You see, what Western traditions have made of Buddhism is often not so much to do with Buddhism, but it is to do precisely with what those particular uh, viewers have felt Western tradition is not. You know? So in the phase of um, rationalism and uh, turn of the century, certain fatigue of, of, of this, Buddhism was all wonderful. It was all the mystical East. And then a little later when um, for new forms of irrationalism have swept the West, Buddhism suddenly became the religion of reason. Yeah? And then... Um, at some point, Buddhism became the, re the religion of practice. You know, Buddhists were actually just sitting; they were just doing it, you know, and we didn't have theologies. So, while we have theologies and we're burdened with this stuff, Buddhism actually does it. Yeah, and you know, every generation of Western Buddhist reception has had their own particular spin, and often that spin has had a lot more to do with what's happening in the West than what's happening with Buddhism. And gradually things are, are, are wearing down and we're actually getting more more genuine understanding of what the texts say, what the archaeology digs up, what uh, cultural history has produced, what the oral traditions are working on. So these are really fascinating times and uh, I don't expect to see the the result of this in a in a big way. I don't expect to live long enough to see that Buddhism completely lands here in the West. Um, when it did so, 
In a comparable situation, namely in China, um, 2000 years ago, it took over 200 years for Buddhism really to land in a culture and in a language um, of comparable complexity than we have nowadays. Um, and it has taken a long time. You know, Chinese Buddhists translated Buddhist texts from as, about as early as the, the year 80 um, into Chinese language, into a borrowed Taoist Chinese language. And by the time they were finished, they had managed to create the Chinese Buddhist language. And they decided to start again with the translation, because now they had actually a language to translate it in, a Buddhist Chinese language. Which, so they decided to start again. And this will take a little longer than we maybe anticipated, uh, this learning or letting Buddhist teachings in and entering into a profound discourse with the, the, the power of these teachings, not just borrowing a few bits and pieces here, there a philosophical concept and here a mindfulness technique. And so, you know, when this goes, we're going to let this in in a bigger way, influence our notion of um, how to live and how to create values and how to um, implement such values and what constitutes growth. You know, this, this will take some time to, to sink in and this will need some discourse. This will also change Buddhism. As you may be aware, Buddhism has changed every, t every time it went somewhere. The Buddhism of Northern India and the Buddhism of Tibet or Japan or Korea are not the same. Yeah. So it has always been, Buddhism has always been morphing, maintaining some core values, but its shape, its, its, its social form, its uh, the color of monks' robes, or all this has morphed in, in, in different places and in different countries. And some of this will happen here. Uh, my ideal would be that we that we, we take we t try to have a, as much of a say in this morphing as possible on the basis of actually an informed rela relationship to those teachings as they come to us through oral traditions and through uh, an increasing wealth and clarity about their textual message. If we don't do this, then. <clears throat> It's again, it'll be our particular takes, our particular spin, the forces that are dominant in our society, mercantile forces, forces of um, healthcare and forces of um, consumerism will probably do determine how this lands here. And um, I probably trust these forces a lot less than, than I would trust uh, wholehearted individuals who sense deep down uh, a value and are on the basis of that inkling uh, making attempts to deeply understand, deeply care, deeply expose themselves to various forms of teaching. That means study, that means practice, that means travel, that means um, trying to think, not just how do I do that on my cushion, but how do I do that in my life? And um, <laughs> if we ask ourselves, how do we do this in our life? Then I think it's worth bearing in mind that one of the key themes, both in mindfulness and Satipatthana, uh, is the 
the notion of relationship. Sati is a relational quality. Satipatthana is practicing something, uh, a strength of mindfulness that is capable of relating in a variety of different ways to a variety of different things, both inside and outside. And when you look, what is at the heart of such relationship? It's basically willingness. And one form of willingness for such a relationship we call friendship. Kalyanamitata. In a way that is so much at the heart of uh, the Buddha's practical suggestion. That Kalyanamitata is quite obvious, he's quite quite blunt about this in some places, that this forms the core of his notion of community. Even the monastic community is essentially, Sangha is essentially uh, an extension of Kalyanamitata. Why is that? The Buddha, without being an object relations psychologist, was, has put in an immense amount of effort into teaching people the value of relationship. Consider how much of that relationship is credited with being the reason for learning to take place. Yeah. It's credited at the, at the core of communal relationship. It's credited for our capacity to do active learning. Yeah? The fact that we need people to help us with things, that we need people to be examples for things, the fact that we need people to support us when we learn things like speaking, speak, or speech, or empathy, or mindfulness. Yeah? This is not something we develop on our own. Many of those things, they actually need support on many, many levels. And for that support, we need people. There's things you just don't learn on your own, on your cushion. You know? You'll never figure out your relationships on your own, on your cushion. You may help going back to that cushion to figure out your relationships, but if you're just there, alone on your cushion, you're very likely repeating some of how the way you are being related to, you will be repeating that with yourself. And you will need probably a, a number, and preferably a large number of real existing people out there that teach you something about you. It is by relating to others that we learn to understand the world. And it is what learning to understand what's happening with us. We need others. We learn about us through meeting others. This is very simple. And the Buddha understood this. That's why he insisted not just on solitude, but he also insisted on community. And he established really great dependencies, remember. Think of his monastic his monastic community, it's very stark. You know, on one hand, he, he, he said, you guys, you should be different from society. You should seek seclusion. You should meditate. You shouldn't mix and mingle. And in the next sentence, he says, but you should make sure that you're depending on them every day for food. Yeah. In other words, you can't just go off, grow your own cabbages and do your own thing and become economically independent of these communities. This is very different from Christian tradition, you know, where monastic rule somewhere with Benedict starts. You know, individualism, work, communal life, but you have to maintain your own economic base. You know. 
Buddhism is very, very different. Monks are not allowed to grow, not, not allowed to harvest, not allowed to own, not allowed to earn. <laughs> yeah. So the only way monastic communities can survive is by living in dependence, uh, daily dependence, on people who are not monks and nuns. Now, what do you think that that means? Yeah. What do you think? Which community is willing to support beggars, monks and nuns, uh, on a daily basis, at least with food and requisites? What do you think when a community will be willing to put up with that? Such a community is only going to be willing to put up with that, and it's quite clearly doing so still today, when this lifestyle of monk and nun in some way makes sense to people who are not monks and nuns. In other words, when there is a relationship, and in that relationship, obviously, some of the not monks and nuns have their needs met. Have an experience that what these guys do over there and what we feed them for, this is meaningful to us. So the Buddha's notion of such a relationship is at the core of his vision for even monastic renunciant life. If you look how much time he spent to try to clarify how community members live with each other, look after each other, look out for each other, how they relate to each other, it is obvious that he put immense amount of thought and immense amount of care into establishing relational dynamics that are helpful for the growth, for introspective growth and for finally the growth of the heart. Yeah. For somebody who says, you know, there are these empty spaces, there are these trees, roots of the trees, you know, don't chat, don't hang around, go and meditate lest you regret it. For somebody who has said that, he spent an awful lot of time actually creating communities, creating living situations, creating rules, creating a map of responsibility, which said basically things like, well, you know, a teacher should look after his disciple, disciple should wash, wash the teacher's feet, and so forth and so forth. But then, you know, um, if, this, if, the, if the teacher is stupid, suddenly the disciple has to look after him and make sure that the teacher doesn't make a fool of himself. And if the disciple is sick, the teacher has to wash his feet and look after him. So there's a remarkable uh, dexterity in that whole principle. What comes out is a powerful vision of mutuality. It's a powerful vision of uh, voluntarily accepted dependence. And... Um, I can't help feeling that when I look at the whole edifice of a monastic discipline, when I look at the message of the Buddhist teaching. And one thing that stands out there is the virtue of friendship, the virtue of companionship, the virtue of what tradition calls kalyanamitata, or having kalyanamitas, noble friends. Friends that are, um, when I associate with them, that are likely to bring about growth in my practice. You may recall there's a famous teaching about seven conditions that give rise to the eightfold path. And one of the conditions, the very first one, is noble friendship. So when people have noble friends, a variety of things are expected, namely that they, uh, that they learn, that they uh, grow, that they develop virtues, and that they become proficient in what they have heard.
Our friend Ananda, who sometimes has been a little bit cocky in the suttas, and we have to be very grateful for his willingness to <clears throat> stick his head above the parapet and sometimes ask questions in the hope to be validated and uh, uh, risking to look stupid. Um, thanks to his um, enthusiasm to ask questions, we have many, many explanations of the Buddha. So one famous passage in the Anguttara Nikaya is where Anada says, it seems to him that you know, half of the holy life, half of the contemplative uh, <clears throat> monastic life in this context seems to him was consisting of noble friendship. And the Buddha famously responding, yeah, one of his rebukes to Ananda, say not so, say not so, Ananda. It's not half of that life, it is the whole of this life that consists of noble friendship. There are other qualities of a noble friend, and I would like you to think of those qualities for a moment. So, there's one set of seven noble qualities of a noble friend, and a noble friend is somebody who inspires love. Um, he or she inspires respect. He or she um, inspires the wish for emulation. He or she is capable of listening. And he or she is capable of giving good advice, giving good counsel. Notice the sequence here. First listening and then giving advice. Sometimes... Um, this is not always kept in that sequence, and it's a lot more effective if that sequence is uh, kept. Um, a noble friend is somebody who is willing to hold deep topics or deep issues. It's possible with a noble friend to engage on deep topics, on deep stuff. And a noble friend is somebody who does not waste one's uh, resources. He looks out that I do not waste my time, my money, my energies on things that are not worth it. Yeah. So that's an interesting set of, of qualities. Yeah. I'm particularly touched by the first three. This is somebody who makes me wish that I um, can resemble him or her. It is somebody who whose presence fills me with respect, and it is somebody who gives me, uh, the word is pia, who gives me a feeling of love. Yeah? It's somebody that in, instills in me the, a sentiment of love. There's another list I wanted to let you know, which is a little more rare. I have to translate. So a friend is somebody who gives what is hard to give. He or she does what is hard to do. He or she remains patient even when spoken to harshly. Now that is a task, isn't it? Um, he or she does not. Uh, he or she does t confide. Yeah. Um, what has been confided, he or she keeps to herself or to himself. He, he or she is free of contempt for the poor men. So he does not. Uh, he, he does not show contempt for people who are poor, either in skill or in fortune or in talents. Uh. Now, and if you ask me, where are all my Kalyanamitas? I say, you should ask, to whom are you willing to be such a Kalyanamita? 
to not just ask who are they, where are they? You know, most people have idealized notions of sangha, particularly if if you've never been part of a sangha, you're highly prone to idealize that experience. Sangha is hard work. For people who think of sangha as the place where they be welcomed in, in a sort of cozy, loving embrace and held within a sense of shared communality, um, I recommend some community experience. Sangha is a statement of intention, you know, it's hard work. It's being together with people and living together with people and not just sharing but actually living a vision is generally hard work and it feels like a great idea as long as you don't have to sacrifice an, in, an inch of your individuality, uh, an inch of your personal freedoms or comforts or um, choices, you know. But if you have ever lived like this, then you will know that Sangha is uh, hard work because it means you have to be with people who you may not have necessarily chosen on the basis of sympathy, but you're living together and practicing and working together and running institutions together and going through, uh, going through highs and lows together because you value and respect their vocation, not necessarily their particular intelligence or their particular meditative gifts or their particular uh, sort of behavioral idiosyncrasies. Yeah. Uh, so I'm particularly concerned not to just make out of this Kalyanamitata teaching another dream of an ideal community I unfortunately never have and I'm deprived of because nobody really loves me enough or understands me enough to recognize what a perfect community member I would make. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, um, I would like to turn this around and say, you know, are you willing to be such a Kalyanamitta? Are you willing to be loved, to be respected, to be emulated? Are you willing to be a good listener, a good counselor? Are you looking out that others don't squander their resources? Are you uh, do what is hard to do? Um, give what is hard to give? Are you remaining patient when spoken too harshly? Yeah? Uh, are you uh, confiding? Are you keeping con- others' confidences? Are you... Uh, not leaving people in need? Uh, Are you not contemptuous when people show their flaws or show show, um, impoverishment in areas of their life? Just consider, consider whether you are thinking of yourself as of a Kalyanamita. And that brings me to the last point. While I think it's useful to connect with others, it's also useful to understand one dimension of Kalyanamita ties. By taking refuge, you connect with your inner friend to make that mind in here your friend. Connecting with that mind as your Kalyanamita, learning how to trust this mind, learning how to make this mind uh, a friend to yourself is a powerful way of translating this teaching of Kalyanamita mitata and internalizing it. Learning to become a refuge for oneself. This is a very different type of independence than I envisaged uh, many years ago. Then I thought, you know, independence means nobody can hurt me anymore, nobody can uh, cut their support, nobody can reject, nobody can impose conditions for a relationship. 
<laughs> now I know I am highly dependent. Most of the things that make me happy are highly dependent. Yeah? I care for people. Um, things can go wrong with people you care for. Uh, this is not a reason not to care. This is not freedom not to care for people because they can be hurt or they can reject you or they could be difficult or they could go away from you. This is not freedom. This is just anxiety. Yeah? So you care and you take the pain that caring brings. Yeah. If you say to somebody, I love you, then that means you say to this person, you're going to hurt me. I give you permission to hurt me because you inevitably will hurt me you're not free and I'm not free and it is very likely that this will show up in our relationship and since we're close um, I'm probably going to hurt you and you're probably going to hurt me and I know this and I'm not saying no to this I'm willing to actually do this with you now that's not what we usually say that's, yeah. that's not what we usually say when we enter relationships or marital contracts or um, but that's what it boils down to. Yeah? The people whom you say that are the people wh whom you're going to hurt and the people who will likely hurt you in ways. They may also will love you, they may spoil you, they may give you wonderful feelings, but it is very likely that the part that is not awakened in between the two of you will show up in the intimacy of your relationship. And you have the maturity to say yes to even that. That's just not, not just lovers, that's also friends, that's also family, that's basically people you care. And I don't see a way that you can grow without caring. I don't see a way. So for me, the big message has become relational. Sati is relational, Brahma-viharas are relational, praxis is relational. And if your practice has nothing to do with your relationship and the way you relate, and if the way you relate does not come under scrutiny, uh, in terms of your practice, then um, I believe something needs rethinking there. Yeah? So, please count the blessings of the people who are precious in your life. Um, preferably, don't try to convince them of Buddhism or of your insights or of your realization. Uh, usually, people who try to be, when you try to convince them of the intrinsic value of Buddhist teaching or your particular degree of realization, they take to that badly. Yeah. Um, missionary zeal is usually not a very effective means. So, uh, they will know how you feel by the way you open the door rather than by what, you, what insights you propound. Um, if they're close to you and they know you, you better walk your talk there rather than profess big insights or big breakthroughs. Um, smile, you know, let them ask. Be, uh, be conspirative rather than merchandising and advertising. Uh, but let them know that you care and let them know that they're precious and let them know that you're in for it. You know, wherever they are, whoever they are, let them know that you're not shirking back from a little pain or a little lack of validation or a little bit of occasional friction. Um, and seek such people. If there are no such people in your life, go to a place where there are such people and invite others into your life to meet you on that level. I think that is the most transformative way to do. We all have a big challenge. You know, 
monastic Buddhism is really at a great advantage because community there is built into the everyday function. A monk alone generally doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, they come in groups, and much of that lifestyle makes sense if it's three and more. Yeah. If it's a community, that's where this whole thing comes into swing. And in a time of rampant individualism, and uh, with all its powers, like independency and lack of peer group pressure and capacity to withstand criticism and all that we're famous for in the West, uh, we also pay a high price. We're so damn independent that we can't live with each other anymore or practice. and It's hard for us to team up. So the big challenge for Buddhism in the West seems to be how to create Sangha, how to create community, that it really is a challenge. Now I believe there are many ways of doing this, but all of them entail some form of effort and some form of relationship. And all the kind of skills and tools and patience and resources we need to invest in relationships to work. And this is not easy work because it usually challenges our self-constructs in, in, uh, in more than one way. I would like you to, to make that effort and to whatever you have learned, whatever you have understood in meditation about your own heart and your own mind, that you think of ways to translate that into your relationships. Relationships with your loved ones, with your work, with how you spend your money, and where you go, where your energies go. It's too early to think about Buddhist polity and you know what the social philosophy of Buddhism is. Some people do. Um, I still think we need a lot, a little more growth here, on the sort of on the introspective side before this can go, go big. But uh, there will be a time when we need to think how to live this outside of meditation halls and and uh, hermitages like this one. I would like to invite you to just ponder what you have understood, precious understanding about your own mind and the conditions in which that mind has the greatest possibility for happiness. What would you need to do in your life to do justice to your understanding? Yeah? What would it entail to live on par with what I have understood in my contemplative practice, in my meditative training? How would I need to live to do justice to these understandings, to these insights? Just ponder. Yeah? And um, hold your dears precious, let them know that they're precious and seek community. That doesn't mean that you will always just love people or like their opinions or behaviors, but keep seeking relational community with people who feel, whom you feel share an aspiration and be prepared to take that work and that as a practice. You know, the yoga of relationship is at the core of how Sangha comes to be. So let me end at this point and wish you, those of you who go, a good start. Yeah. You know where the stuff grows. I don't need to tell you. Yeah. You have access. This is a very privileged corner of the world when it comes to access to the Dhamma. So take care.